Good evening. It's good to see all of you here tonight, and uh, thank you for coming out, especially we have the first real day of spring, it seems, and you've come in indoors. We appreciate that. Uh, this is going to be a very special evening. Uh, we at the Center for Public Leadership are delighted to play host along, I'm, sh I'm sure, the, the Belfer Center and the Business School, and who else? We, there are many, many. Uh, victory has many fathers, right? So this is a, the occasion for this is that uh, our former dean and, and, uh, and our now very popular professor, Joe Nye, uh, has a book coming out. And I asked uh, what, when it was coming out, and it was May 1. And I should have asked the question, which book? He is so prolific that you never know uh, which book it is that's actually appearing. Uh, but it's an occasion for celebration, but it's also an occasion uh, we thought to explore questions relating to leadership, uh, especially in this case, looking at, at leadership through a presidential lens. Uh, and we're joined by Nancy Kane and Graham Allison. Let me get, give you, you have bios, uh, so I needn't take much time with this, but I'm, I think most of you know that uh, Joe Nye is a university distinguished service professor, former dean. Um, like the other three here, he got his PhD at Harvard. Started at Princeton, but he found his way after that. Uh, came to Harvard and has been at Harvard ever since, I believe. Is that not correct? Sadly, <laughs> Sadly ever since. But he goes to Oxford to teach, and also he's in demand all over the world. Let me, because um, uh, I enjoy Nancy's uh, uh, introduction so much, I'm going to move to Graham, uh, who, is, who is much more like the rest of you know, distinguished faculty members here. He's, uh, uh, he's the director of the Center for Science and International Affairs, another former dean, as you know, who bears, uh, he and Joe had a great deal to do with building this school. They both worked in Washington. He was the founding dean of the modern Kennedy School. Um, and uh, he has written, as you know, many books on the nuclear issues and proliferation, but he also wrote uh, after the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, a book that remains iconic with regard to decision-making. It was one that uh, remains very much in vogue uh, today. Uh, and we're joined tonight, we're happily so, uh, by Nancy Kane. Now, this is on her website. She lists herself as a teacher, writer, poet, and pilgrim. What an interesting, arresting uh, bio. You'll have to read the rest there, but those, those who will follow her more closely know she's he holds a chair at the business school, the Robinson Chair of Business Administration. Uh, but she's actually a historian who's written, who at one time was writing about uh, American business, but is now deeply into a book which I hope is going to come out soon because I've been w looking for this for a long time, almost as long as she's been looking for one for me. But uh, she's been much more successful. I'm still in chapter 11. Uh, but uh, she's currently working on a book about the leader, the journeys, leadership journeys of six individuals, Abraham Lincoln, Ernest Shackleton, and Rachel Carson among them. It's going to be a great book. We keep luring and trying to lure her to the Kennedy School, uh, and we've partway succeeded. She's now teaching a course here, um, a very popular leadership course. Uh, and as you'll find, she's a woman of no passion. She's just a very calm, cool, collected, and she's, you know, sort of shy. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, but anyway, this is a terrific panel. So, Joe, the question becomes, as, as you well know, because you uh, embrace leadership questions so uh, vigorously these recent years, uh, the, the question is often asked, do leaders really matter? It's been an old chestnut in uh, leadership literature. Uh, Thomas Carlyle, 
the uh, philosopher and historian famously wrote that history is the biography of great men. They would have added, of course, of great women today. Um, but that it was established the notion that the individual does matter and, and really shapes history. Tolstoy represented a very different school. In War and Peace, he basically argues uh, that, uh, that leaders are the slaves of history. They're, they're controlled and by outside forces much greater than they were. It had Napoleon never invaded Russia. Uh, someone else, some other French general probably uh, would have. Uh, very much a deterministic school. And these schools have sort of been at war with each other. So along comes Professor Nye and he said, well, let's look at this proposition more closely uh, and study the presidencies of eight individuals uh, uh, in the 20th century, starting with Teddy Roosevelt, and ask how much did they matter in the rise of American power? And the answers, I think, are quite striking and important, and that's why we're here. So Joe, tell us more about your explorations. Well, I, the basic question of uh, do leaders matter is, is fascinating, and unfortunately it doesn't have a single answer. But if you ask the question about American presidents and foreign policy, it raises the question of would the United States have wound up being the dominant power in the world no matter who was president? Because you start the 20th century, we're not dominant. You end the 20th century, we're dominant. Was it simply because we had a continental scale economy and two oceans and weak neighbors? And therefore, no matter who was president, it all would have turned out about the same? Or did the choices of particular presidents make a difference? So that was, the, that was the test. And one of the ways to test that was not only looking at the presidents who presided over the periods of expansion, but to imagine what would have happened if you ran history in a counterfactual way. And you said, suppose the next most likely person had been president instead. Would you have got the same outcome? So if McKinley hadn't been assassinated, there would have been no Teddy Roosevelt. If Teddy Roosevelt hadn't run as the third party candidate in 1912, there would have been no Woodrow Wilson. If uh, Franklin Roosevelt had chosen uh, or maintained or kept his vice president, uh, Henry Wallace, in 1944, there would have been no Harry Truman. And, uh, and so I run through history with these alternatives uh, to see what difference it made. What I concluded uh, was that about half of the presidents, the key presidents in the, who presided over the expansion of American power in the 20th century, about half of them made a difference. It made a difference as to who was president. But it wasn't the half I expected. Hmm. You'd expect that the ones who really mattered most were the ones that we call transformational leaders or inspirational leaders, you know, flashy ones, Woodrow Wilson, for example, or Teddy Roosevelt, or, you know, that these are the ones who are going to make uh, all the difference, and that leaders who are managers, who, who make the trains run on time, who hold things in place, that we often call transactional leaders, these these people tend to be devalued by the editorial writers and the leadership theorists. We tend to think they're not important. In fact, two of the key leaders of the 20th century in terms of the consolidation of American power were Dwight Eisenhower and George H.W. Bush, or Bush 41, as he's sometimes called. And to my surprise, the, both transactional and transformational leaders mattered. 
But it wasn't all the transformationals who mattered. Some of them didn't. And it was a couple of the transactionals, Eisenhower and Bush, who were absolutely crucial. So the surprise I find as I, as I played this little game of counterfactual history is that, yes, leaders matter, in this case about half the time, but it wasn't the leaders that the theory would have predicted. That's very striking. And Graham, did you, as someone who has studied uh, presidents closely as well, did you agree with that, that, that outcome? Or would you say Teddy Roosevelt, for example, had more impact? Well, first let me say just a bit about the book, and then Joe and I have had a chance to argue this in other settings. And uh, I think he gets Teddy Roosevelt versus Wilson wrong. So there's to, to have a, at least some, some differences, that is. You, you, I, you think Teddy Roosevelt and, and Wilson what? I would say Teddy Roosevelt, in my view, had a greater impact than Woodrow Wilson. Uh -huh. so I, I'll come back to that just for a second. Let me just to say that there's some differences. Sure. Since you said, why don't we try to find some differences as well as similarities. Let me first say about the similarities. I think what's especially interesting about the book is that Joe starts with an intriguing question. He gives one a fast ride through the 20th century presidents, uh, all in a very readable fashion, and he uh, uh, is thoughtful, but also a little bit, I would say, uh, playful with the answers in the, in the way that it invites a debate or a discussion. So Have you, you've read Joe's novel, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, he, is he as playful in the book as, as sex scenes in his novel? <laughs> I would say that, uh, what can I say in public about this? That uh, <laughs> if, you, if you want to embarrass Joe, which we do from time to time on fishing trips, we take this novel and read part of a sex scene after <laughs> a lot of wine. And I think, as I said when we did Joe's uh, birthday party, that from this you would have to conclude there was a famous professor of political science at Yale where, where David went, uh, Carl Deutsch, who wrote a book on networking theory. And uh, someone reviewed it and said, this is the best description of the interactions in politics written by somebody who's not a member of the human race. <laughs> uh, so with no intuition. So I think Joe's sex scene makes me wonder how he has three such fantastic boys. But leave that aside. Let me come back uh, to the heart of the matter. So This is what we do at the Kennedy School, as you know, now. <laughs> uh, his, his wife uh, instructs him carefully, I'm sure. That's, uh, uh, Molly is, uh, is the best thing that happened to Joe, as he always says. And uh, I think that's certainly right. So with respect to the argument, though, what, why, that, why I like the book is nice, slim, fast read through the history, and you can debate discussion. So if you take the Woodrow Wilson, so here, and, the, and the question that Joe puts is, uh, take, the, take, the narrow, take the modest counterfactuals. So if uh, McKinley had stayed president rather than Teddy Roosevelt, I mean, that's quite plausible. McKinley just happened to get shot. Or take Kennedy, where he gives, I think, short shift to Kennedy, where if Kennedy had been shot uh, two years before, rather than when he was, Johnson would have been president. He was the vice president, so that's quite plausible. Johnson would have been president during the Cuban Missile Crisis. I think it might have turned out differently. And if you'd end up with a nuclear war, the end of the century would look like a different, different picture. So in both of those cases, I would say, uh, I, I would give more weight to the TR uh, 
uh, versus Wilson, but, with that, but Joe's got a very subtle argument there. And I would think in Kennedy, uh, basically, he didn't deal with much. I mean, there's only a couple of paragraphs. But I would say, at least from the looking at the missile crisis, that if Kennedy had been killed by Oswald two years earlier rather than when he was, so Johnson would have been president, you go through the missile crisis, and then you do the counterfactuals. I think it's quite plausible that we would have made some choices that would have ended in a nuclear so, war. Yeah. So clearly, if you had somebody else in office, the decision-making might have been different. I assume you would agree yeah. with that, but that's not, but you have a broad, broader point. No, I, I think the, uh, uh, we'll leave Wilson and, and, and TR for a minute, but on Kennedy, I think it was his greatest moment uh, the way he handled the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I think Graham's right that if Johnson had been president, he didn't have the experience and would have been more hawkish and could have gotten us into a, 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 a nuclear uh, escapade. So I think I agree with him. I actually say in the book that Kennedy's great capacity was the Cuban Missile Crisis. But if you look at Kennedy overall, and this is sacrilegious for a former dean of the Kennedy School to say, I guess, uh, I don't think he was as significant a president other than the Cuban Missile Crisis as most people think. Now, that's partly because his tenure was cut short. Three years is not a very long or adequate time to judge a president. But if you look at uh, uh, his fumbling over the uh, Bay of Pigs, if you look at his fumbling over the initial summit with Khrushchev in Vienna, um, it, this was not a great presidency. And to play Graham's counterfactual in the other direction, suppose he hadn't been shot. Some people have made an industry out of saying he would have gotten us out of Vietnam. Well, it's not so clear. And if you argue that Vietnam led to the, uh, to the bankrupting and the expenditure of political as well as real capital that made us draw back in the 1970s, I think Kennedy gets part of the credit for that along with Johnson. Nancy, your take on this, you've been... Well, I spent today reading the book. I, I, I had the, the brief, but I read the book, because um, historians, we read books. It's a good book, it's a short book, which makes it an even better book, but there's a lot in <laughs> it. There's a lot in it. And a couple of things are really interesting to me. So I, I was struck again by how different political scientists think about the world than historians. We think of what Joe calls structures, or Graham would call structures, and, and context, we, we call that context, or, or larger historical forces. And then we have individual agency and the confluence, right? Without a regression, the confluence or the interaction of those, those two aspects really create history. So that's frustratingly vague, but be, be that as it may, that's the way we work. And, 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 and so I, kept, I was looking here for what's the, age, what's the role of agency, and, and, and Joe makes a very careful case for it being there, but being less significant than we think when we talk about charismatic leaders or the power of the individual or there is no history, only biography, right? And, 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 and he, didn't, he didn't win me over completely, but, but I, 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 I really learned a lot about foreign policy and about presidents that I had was surprised to realize that I think Joe is dead on, like 40, Bush 41, uh, like Franklin Roosevelt, who Joe is very, very careful to unpack in, in, in a couple of different ways. First, 
he, he makes a very, very good case that Roosevelt was very much constrained. He didn't, he didn't know that much about foreign policy in some sense to begin with, but he was very constrained in the mid-30s. He saw less you know, kind of dramatically or point, potently than Churchill did that, that there was something really important going on with National Socialism and that it was a threat. And, and, and you know, Roosevelt is very constrained all the way through 37, through Kristallnacht, when he, when he gets what's going on, um, through, through Munich, through the beginning of the First World War in 39, he's constrained and he's constrained and he's constrained and he's playing games to kind of help Britain. And, and it's only with Pearl Harbor, right, that he can, in some sense, really put his foot to the metal, put the pedal to the metal, and become something more than an incremental, because Joe uses a couple of different different terms to talk about transaction and incremental powerful, but still powerful, actions and policies. And, and so, so I thought that was really interesting to think how someone, just like Lincoln, wrote, Lincoln's just like this, by the way. He's a transactional kind of incrementalist who's very careful to keep pace with public opinion and who's so constrained through the first two years of the Civil War before he can become and take the country into a transform, he can become transformational and take the country there. So, so I thought the, 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 the care and trenchant nature of what you're saying is very important. So I learned a lot. So it's a good book and it's a worthy read. The, one of the kind of major chords of Joe's symphony is something he calls contextual intelligence. And maybe you'll say something about it, but it's a fascinating idea about what it takes to be adept and ethical and effective and be more than a goal setter, be someone who gets the laundry out and makes the trains run uh, in foreign policy. And one of the things I just wanted to add, in, if I, you know, if from someone who, who teaches about human agency in leaders um, and you know, to good and less good effect in this wonderful course I'm teaching here on the history of leadership, you know, I thought we needed more attention to emotional intelligence. Now I know that probably figures into contextual intelligence and I say that as someone who is so struck right now as a historian by the way that managing the emotional energy and, and affect of your constituents, whoever they are, Congress, other diplomats, Gorbachev and, and, and Bush 41, Right, how managing that, that energy in, in, in this moment and going forward into the 21st century is so important. And just two data points and I'll pause. Um, if you think about Arab Spring, the Arab Spring, right, which Joe has some very insightful things to say about, and you think about the role of the digital revolution, and you think about the smartphone as a can of lighter fluid, right, that in a sense can really get a fire going. A lot of what that fire is running on is not that affects foreign policy, that affects the nation states, that affects the sense of global community, that affects power, right? A lot of what that's running on is, is emotion. It's not running on a kind of rational analysis. It's not running on great knowledge for a, of a lot of new, powerful, non-governmental actors, which Joe talks a lot about. It's running on emotional energy. And so the logic of crowds, or the madness of crowds, or the, the, moment, the, the animal spirits, as Cain called it when he was talking about the causes of the Great Depression, right? what Obama was trying to shore up with his, you know, his first huge recovery bill. Right? So much of, now, of, of in a global, interdependent, hyper-connected, right, very reactive world now depends on, on, on managing and trying to steer emotional energy. And I just think that that's now become a piece of foreign policy. 
you know, with new importance. I mean, it's interesting when you think about Barack Obama in that context, because here's someone who clearly has a lot of weapons, if you will, or tools, or apps on his emotional smartphone. And yeah, and sometimes he's been brilliant at utilizing those and downloading those and, and helping us with those. But other times, he's just, you know, he's just not, not stepped up to the plate or, 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 or missed the boat. And so, you know, I, I think the role of emotional intelligence as it plays into what, as it feeds into contextual intelligence is, 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 is extraordinarily important and getting more so. And I'll, I'll pause with that. That's, that. that's striking. Let me ask you one last, one other question, Nancy, and come back to Joe and contextual. Uh, in reading the book, I was, I, the, the comparison kept, or the parallel that kept coming to mind was a book out of the business field by Jim Collins on good to great and what, why some corporations, you know, rise, go from good to being terrific and some corporations just remain good. And he came to the conclusion of that one significant factor, which he did not want to find, but he found anyway, was that what he called level five leadership. And it was non-charismatic, very uh, clear-headed about goals, very persistent, very professional, keep marching toward the goals, and those are the people who get the best results. And I kept thinking, that's very similar to what you say about Eisenhower and, 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 and George Bush Sr. I mean, if you think of leadership, it's a mixture of, I call it a triangle sometimes, of the characteristics or traits of the individuals that we're focusing on at the time we call the leader, but also the needs and characteristics of the followers and then the context in which they interact. And the leader who's successful is the one who understands how the followers' needs change with different contexts. I mean, if, in business terms, if you're a GE vice president and you go to a Silicon Valley firm, if you don't change your style uh, to the context of a Silicon Valley enterprise, you're going to fail. And there's some very good cases of that. For presidents, it, contextual intelligence means understanding uh, the political culture, the distribution of power, and the needs of your followers as the situation changes. I can illustrate this with the two Bushes. I mean, if you want a test case for leadership, you're never going to get two presidents who are going to, where you're going to hold genetics more constant <laughs> than at least for half of the variants than, uh, than Bush 41 and 43. Bush 41 had a long career in various parts of the American foreign service security policy area. I mean, ambassador to the UN, envoy to China, uh, head of the CIA. He really knew a lot. He had a very good feel for the context of politics. Uh, and he was then thrown into a revolutionary situation in 1989, where the world suddenly was transformed upside down. He managed to pull off one of the great historical coups which was in 1989, if anybody said, could you imagine the unified Germany inside NATO and the Soviets voluntarily withdrawing all those troops? You said, no, a very low probability bet. And Bush 41 did it. It's quite an extraordinary accomplishment. Look at his son and Bush 43, who said, I want to be transformational. I don't play small ball. I'm going to make a big change. 
9-11 was a big shock. I mean, Bush 43 was not interested in foreign policy, had very little experience in foreign policy. 9-11 gave him a sense of mission, and he allowed that sense of mission to be extended to the invasion of Iraq, which was not merely to overthrow Saddam Hussein and get rid of the alleged or supposed nuclear weapons, but also to transform Iraq so that you would transform the Middle East. And he lacked contextual intelligence. He just didn't understand what it was like to occupy and try to transform a country like Iraq. So if you contrast those two leaders, uh, each of which was confronted with major opportunities, 1989 and 2001, uh, the father had great contextual intelligence. The son didn't. Hmm. Another counterfactual I would suggest to you. I was with Jeb Bush last night and was musing on this question. In 1994, both Jeb Bush and his brother George W. ran for governor. Jeb was expected to win in Florida, and George was expected to lose in Texas. And it was just the, just the, result, uh, the, the uh, flip side of that. And so the question became, becomes, if in 1994, Jeb had won as expected and George had lost as expected, would we have ever gone into Iraq? And I would submit no. I think that's probably right. There's a, I think it's easier yeah. than that. If, if the Supreme Court had counted differently, <laughs> <laughs> no, you would have yeah. had Gore, yeah. and the chance of Gore going to war yeah. in Iraq was about zero. Yeah. Yeah. That's right, but I just, I keep thinking, what a quirk in history it was that those two brothers ran on the same day, and the results contradicted. Everybody thought it, and Jeb was on his way to the White House. And it, how history would have been hugely different. Now, human agency, to go back to what Nancy said, human agency does matter. And in some circumstances, it can matter tremendously. Uh, there's a wonderful metaphor that some people use to talk about structure and agency or individual leadership. The metaphor is one of a rushing river and the rushing river is formed by structural forces. Rain falls, it comes down valleys and rocks, it goes into a, either a broad plain, which is flat and slow, or a canyon, which is fast and full of rocks. And, and the, the metaphor that some people have is that human leaders are like ants clinging to a log that is being rushed down this torrent, and that a good leader is one that clings on. And others say, well, it's true that structure creates the shape and volume and speed of the river, but some leaders are like people who are steering a raft in a rafting expedition, and they fend off rocks or they get channels that are better than others. So it's still a mixture of structural forces and human agency. But if you get somebody who is trying to steer this raft and is no good, you're going to tip it over and drown. And if you're just clinging on to the, to the log, the log's going to probably, you're not going to cling. Um, so I think this, this the, the, Marx was one of the best people who ever summed this up. And his phrase was that uh, men, or we'd say and women now, uh, make history, but not under the conditions in which they choose. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, so if it's true, as you argue, that presidents through leadership, uh, through good leadership, can build American power. Does the reverse hold that presidents who fail to deal with issues 
presidents who let history sort of march on. Uh, also responsible for bad things happening and should take responsibility for, say, the decline of America, which you don't yet see. <laughs> Although think, Graham you know, and I so see science. <laughs> Go ahead, please. Well, no, I think... But, I think, but it's, it's an absence of leadership also, in effect, uh, transformation. No, I think very much so. And I think one of the things about uh, uh, Obama is that I think he has not accepted the metaphor of decline to explain where America is in the world today, because I think it's not a good descriptor of where we are. I think he has a better sense, sense that's similar to the uh, assessment of the National Intelligence Council of where the United States will be in 2030, which they said we'll still be primus inter pares, but there's going to be a rise of the rest at the same time. So a good leader doesn't go out and say, I'm going to maintain American supremacy as in the 20th century. He can't do that anymore. But he also doesn't say, I'm going to adjust to an inevitable decline, which could bring it on. So I think Obama's got it about right in terms of a president responding to a very big change in context. The 21st century is not the 20th century. And the question is adjusting to that. I think he's done reasonably well. But the well, just to finish that, the interesting thing is when you listened to him in 2008, he sounded like he was going to be transformational. He promised. He promised. Yeah, he promised he's going to be transformational. He was going to bend the arc of history. If you look at what he's done, he's been much more transactional or incremental. He's much more like Eisenhower in that sense, of, or Bush 41, than he is like Bush 43. Hmm. Graham? I, I think... Uh, the answer to your question is yes, okay? So let me uh, go back. The, the, the most interesting uh, speech given in 2001, so the beginning of the 21st century, was by Alan Greenspan. This is in April of 2001. And he said, there's going to be a terrible financial problem uh, in the world because the U.S. is no longer going to borrow money so we'll no longer issue 30-year treasuries. So there'll be no benchmark for financial markets. And this is going to be a crisis. Well, we fixed that problem. <laughs> uh, so if you, look at the, if you look at what happened in 2001, the tax cuts, plus then in 2003, the war, take a balance sheet that was in balance going to surplus, and put us into today $16 trillion worth of debt in a financial uh, set of circumstances that make you have some questions. So in 12 or 12 and a half years, a, I mean, if you took this as a family or a firm or otherwise, now of course a country's not a firm. There's a lot of different features and factors, but the relative position of the U.S. today in the world versus competitors compared to 2001, is significantly diminished. That's what I think, clearly. And if I do it across every attribute, I mean, let's just take the period since the financial, the great financial recession of 2007. So here you have a great financial crisis. We've got five years of record. European's economy, Europe's economy, is smaller today than it was before the crash. U.S. economy, slightly bigger. 
40% of all the growth in the world economy since the crash occurred in one country, China. And Joe has a good, good discussion of China at the end of the book. I mean, China, in, in 1987, 25 years ago, China's economy, total economy, was smaller than the economy of Spain. Last year, the increment of growth in China's economy was bigger than the entire economy of Spain. So you look and you say, well, oh, I see. So now Joan rightly says in the book, economic foundations are not the only dimension of power, but over the long run, if you bet an economy is bigger and stronger, it may not necessarily translate that into military advantage, but if it's a technologically advanced country, it's likely to do. And if and as it does, it may not then be culturally attractive. That's another dimension that Joe discusses. But I would say the U.S. position is significantly worse today than it was in January th of 2001, and that was significantly a result of presidential leadership. I, I agree with that. I think that uh, uh, transformational leaders or leaders who say that their objectives are transformational can often make mistakes that can set you back. And I think Bush 43, taking the actions Graham said, cutting taxes and entering into war that he wasn't going to pay for, had the effects that Graham just described. And if you look back to Woodrow Wilson, Wilson was a transformational leader. He decided he was going to change the whole way the world did international politics by creating a League of Nations. And he wanted, he was faced with the problem of getting the United States into World War I, which he felt he had to do after the Germans had their uninterrupted sinking of American ships. But unlike Teddy Roosevelt, who would have got us into the war as a realist, balance of power, Wilson got us into it by appealing to American moralism. We were going to change the world, and, wor and balance of power would be forever gone. The net effect of that is he got two million American men into Europe, a huge reversal in American foreign policy from George Washington's no entangling alliances. But he didn't get his League of Nations through, partly because of his own stubbornness and pig-headedness. The net result of that is when Americans then soured on having gone into the war, it led to an extreme reaction in the 1930s, which was the isolationism that Franklin Roosevelt couldn't overcome. So in a sense, Wilson was transformational, and he aimed to make a huge change. But when he failed to pull it off, he left us worse off, and it actually was a setback for American power. I think the same would be true with Bush 43, that he wanted to be transformational, he said so, and failing to pull it off actually set back American power. We should go to the floor, but I, before we do, I think just inevitably in light of events this week, the people here are going to want to hear some reflections, brief reflections on as 48 hours later about the events here in Boston. We don't know yet. You know, there are conflicting reports about whether someone is in custody or not, whether someone has been identified, but we know the rough outlines of what happened. 
Um, and I just, I'd just be curious if each of you could comment on that, and then let's go to the floor. Nancy? So yesterday, um, because the business school canceled classes, and I have a lot of business school students in my class, I, um, I, had, a, I had an optional class, and I said, please come to class if you wish. We'll say some words. I'll say some words about effective leadership in the wake of the Boston Marathon bombing tragedy, uh, and then I'll, you know, we can talk about whatever you want. So I did that. I used uh, a little example that Robert, of Robert Kennedy's impromptu speech on April 4th, 1968, when King died in Indianapolis. An astounding speech, if you haven't. If you don't remember that or you've never heard it, Google it. It's all over YouTube. It's five minutes, and it's one of the most profound leadership moments in the sense of individual agency that you will see. And then I read a little bit of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and anyway. But the most astounding moment in the class had nothing to do with me. It had to do with three students from the Kennedy School in the back row, one from Jerusalem, one from Pakistan, and one from Beirut. The gentleman from Beirut had his face injured by shrapnel and in, in terrorist bombing, and his leg had been hurt. And they, each of those gentlemen, in very different, distinct, astounding ways, Grace was in the room, uh, talked about the number of terrorist attacks since last week in their countries. And some of them could tell us in the tens of thousands how many had been killed in the last decade or two. So if that wasn't enough, then um, they each talked about their response to the tragedy. And at one point, the gentleman from Beirut and the gentleman from Jerusalem just looked at each other and said, you know, we're across some kind of divide, but the suffering we're talking about is, is the, exactly the same. Human beings are not different. The suffering is the same. And if we can reach across this moment and recognize that, and recognize that, literally he said this, and recognize, as Bonhoeffer said, that there is no defense against folly, and that the answer is not more retaliation, but some kind of redemptive right, aspect toward one another and recognition of our similarities and the global village we live in, well, then that's grabbing some diamonds out of the rough of this tragedy. So I wait for Barack Obama to say something like that, or Robert, what Robert Kennedy said, or for some of our very public and powerful leaders to call us, as Lincoln did, to the better angels of our nature. Well, I think. I think it's, uh, as you said, very early to try to figure out what, what one thinks, and I have a whole mixture of emotions and uh, confusion. I like very much what Nancy said. I just say two things for, to, to try to connect it to, the, to Joe's book, because I think it does do. So uh, first, uh, this was a stark reminder that, uh, of reality, I think what Nancy's student said. I mean, many people live in environments where stuff like this happens, and this is, this is their life. So if you looked at how many bombings there were this past week and how many people died, I, I sort of just keep a little track like that. There's mucho thousands. This was not the biggest bombing that happened, you know, that day. Not by, not by far. So if you go to Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria, God forbid, or Mali, or Pakistan. There's lots and lots of places in the world where people are killed all the time. Now, what does this tell us? I mean, first, 
the fragility of life, and secondly, uh, that the security of the environments in which we live, and which most Americans in Boston take as kind of a natural condition, it's not a natural condition. It emerges from a lot of very hard work by lots and lots of people. Most people at the, at the, uh, at the marathon are there celebrating appropriately. This is a wonderful day. People come from all over the world to run. There's a bunch of other guys there <coughs> and gals that are working pretty hard trying to keep it safe enough so these people don't have to worry about And we're there as first responders. And we're there as first responders. And the notion of the pictures of which direction people run, all of us run away. Not all of us. Not all of us. Some actually run to try to be helpful. And it's a pretty amazing thing. I'd say the second thing to, to go to Joe's uh, argument, if you do the structural as opposed to the individual agency, a horrible, horrible structural fact that we study a lot at the Belfer Center, and Joe's written about, I've written about, is that technology continues advancing in ways that make it possible for smaller and smaller groups of people to kill larger and larger numbers of people. Now this is terrible. Uh, this guys, or these guys, or whoever does this, you know, does a, a, a primitive bomb. With a pressure cooker. <laughs> but it could just as well have been a more sophisticated bomb if the bomb in, in uh, Times Square had gone off, that might have killed 100 people. Jumped to 9-11, 3,000 people. I mean, my goodness, I worry about a nuclear terrorist event. Maybe 100,000 people, or a biological event. If Mr. Ivins, the guy that did the anthrax attack just shortly after 9-11, had distributed the anthrax that he produced in ways that he knew how to do, he could have killed tens of thousands of people. So we could see something much, much worse than that. That's a structural condition in Joe's, to go to Joe's argument, that then leaders have to try to cope with. And unfortunately, the advance in science and technology and the relentless diffusion of knowledge through the internet make it possible for smaller and smaller groups of people to do bigger and bigger damage. That's the problem every president's gonna have to cope with. This one, the next one, the one after that, as a, as a condition. I, I uh, want to pick up where Nancy left off. When you look at an event like this uh, bombing of a marathon, it just makes your blood boil. I mean, killing an eight-year-old, a graduate student from China who is here trying to learn, and a woman who was working in a restaurant in, what is it, Medford or something? She was the daughter of a woman. She's the daughter of a business school. And it's just, it just, you know, you want to seize these people and, and get even. But the, the interesting question is, what does the leader, the top leader in this case, the president, do? There's a temptation to immediately shoot your mouth off. And the problem with that is that those of us who've lived through crises realize the first reports are almost always wrong. That means that if you speak too soon, you're going to say some things which are later going to have to be retracted or which if you don't retract them, the press and the blogosphere is going to show that you were wrong. And they're not going to give you the benefit of the doubt. They're going to see, see the government's lying to us again. And you've thereby eroded credibility. And you've made things worse, not better. At some point, the leader has to do what Nancy says, be the point of reassurance, of reestablishment of community. And 
I think that Obama has shown a capacity to do this with the Gabby Giffords shooting, with, with Newtown. 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 These are both cases where essentially he did play this unifying role. Interesting, though, that he has chosen not to speak too soon on the Boston bombing. And I think that's probably wise. I mean, he is scheduled, I guess, to come, was it tomorrow? Or, and I imagine at that point, you will feel that it's time to give this reassurance, create a sense of community speech. But if he had been the person who got out in front expressing anger or whatever uh, on uh, the day of the event, on Monday, it may well be that he could have done more harm than good. And that's contextual intelligence, knowing when you make which kind of intervention. If somebody has to say something early, maybe it should be, if it's an anthrax attack, a man wearing a white coat, not a political leader who says it. And if Obama has to make some statement, as he did on Monday, maybe you have to be careful not to call it a terrorist attack and attribute to it. We'll have to see tomorrow how he does on part two, the part that Nancy properly described. But knowing how to do both those things and when is, I think, crucial for, for effective leadership. And speaking to the emotions. No, that's yeah. the part that he, he, I hope he's going to do tomorrow. But I think the, the point is, I think it was appropriate that he didn't do it Monday. Right. Let's go to the floor. If someone has a, if you have a question, there's a microphone here, a microphone there. Good. We have a, uh, we'll start, let's see, which one of you, is one of you, please. <laughs> go ahead, please. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Richard. I'm a mid-career here. Um, I would like to ask the panel about the presidential leadership or lack thereof. When a president looks into the eyes of the American people and tells them a truth they don't like to hear. I'm thinking of the Malay speech in 1979 when President Carter told us, our conspicuous consumption is going to destroy us, either today or tomorrow. And it was completely rejected by the American people. And my question to you is, is that proper leadership? What could Carter have done? And what could President today, Obama or someone else do to tell the American people your conspicuous consumption is going to lead to our ultimate destruction. Thank you very much. Well, I, I, if I, I was in the Carter administration and I remember the Malay's speech, I think it was not a wise tactic. Presidents have to be careful to choose their rhetoric and their moment. To go back to Franklin Roosevelt, what was interesting is Franklin Roosevelt discovered after ignoring it with Kristallnacht in Munich, that Hitler was a threat to us. And he tried at various times to speak truth to the American people. Every time he did, he risked losing his audience rather than winning it, because the isolation was that se severe. So he was very carefully never charismatic or transformational on that issue. He was very careful, cautious, transactional. And that tactic, meant that when Pearl Harbor finally occurred, which changed the view of the American people, he had been able to institute a draft, give aid to Britain, and prepare American military industry. All of which he did, but not by appealing to how do I, how do I get the American people to confront the reality of the threat from Hitler, 
but by a whole series of indirections. So we often think of Roosevelt as this great charismatic speaker, the fireside talks and so forth. You go back and look at those talks, they were about domestic politics. But if you go back and look and ask what did he say to convert the American people on foreign policy, very, very little, and it was indirect and cautious. So a leader has to understand his followers and understand the context. I actually think Jimmy Carter is going to go down in history better than most people think for events like giving back the Panama Canal, which if he hadn't would have led to disastrous relations with Latin America. So there are a lot of good things about Jimmy Carter. But picking this sort of thing, I'll just dump this on the American people, as he did the, the Malaise speech, I think was uh, inadequate contextual intelligence on his part. I'll just add a tail end to that, and, and that is, if you go back and look a little more closely, I think what you'll find is that the immediate response to the speech was actually quite positive. But the next day, he fired a lot of people in his cabinet, and it created this sense of disorder, and that he was not in control of things, and that's when everything got wrapped in the Malay speech, he blamed us, and it, it cascaded down at that point. Had he just given the speech, it's, no, it, it, it's an interesting question of whether his willingness to say things, as he did, would have actually gone down better than we now know. It's a hard, it's one of those questions hard to sort out. Please, yes. Make a quick comment. Yeah. About the uh, Malay speech and the, the actions following yeah. firing most of the cabinet, or half of it, including one of our own Jim Schlesinger, who right. was the Secretary of Energy, somebody commented on it. He cut down all the tall trees and kept the monkeys. <laughs> uh, and secondly, with respect to giving back the Panama Canal, some of you remember Senator Hayakawa, who was at the time, uh, he was a former English professor, was a Senator, senator from State. California. He said, give, it, give back the Panama Canal. We stole it, fair and square. <laughs> that was so I agreed with him. Yeah. <laughs> Please, sir. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Sita Gofard. I'm a sophomore at the college, and it was a fascinating discussion. Professor Nye, I look forward to reading your new book. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about um, this transformational leadership as opposed to transactional leadership. You talked a little bit about um, leaders who are successful in being transformational and also what happens when they fail. I want to know why are some leaders more successful at being transformational, since so many leaders promise to be that way, um, but have a very hard time doing so, understandably. And if a leader, let's say Obama, who made many promises, he wants to really be um, transformational and seen in history as being one who sort of changed the course of America, you know, how would you go about doing that? Is it something that you can personally influence, or? Is that almost something that is beyond your control and left to your institutions or other factors that you can't influence? Well, it's a, it's a good question. And perhaps the secret to being an effective transformational leader is to have this contextual intelligence. Franklin Roosevelt was a transformational leader. But notice how extraordinarily cautious he was in working up to the point. He waited to events to get to where he could then after Pearl Harbor, unleashed the rhetoric which essentially uh, took these energies, the emotional energies of the American people and channeled them. But if, if uh, he was extraordinarily cautious, almost to a fault before that. Uh, now, there are other situations where, it, where, a, where a transformational leader can make a huge difference. Let me think of uh, 
of a case like uh, Nelson Mandela in South Africa. The brilliant thing about Mandela is he came into a society which had been riven by this terrible apartheid system. They'd stolen 30 years of his life, had every reason to be resentful, to organize his followers to get revenge. But he knew that if he did that, he would then preside over a disrupted, destroyed society. And Mandela essentially used his energies as a leader, his status as a hero, which he was, to essentially work for the reconciliation, which avoided the bloodbath that everybody projected. And as this famous film once showed, when Mandela went to the rugby game and put on the jersey of the Springboks, the white rugby team during the apartheid era, in front of everybody, that was an extraordinary act of transformational leadership without saying a word, by just manipulating symbols effectively. So I, I'm, I'm not against transformational leadership, but knowing how and when to do it is crucial. Wilson didn't, and Bush 43 didn't. Can I add something to this? Sure. It's a, I think it's a great question. So just a couple of things to add to what Joe just said. And, I'd add, and he, he mentions Martin Luther King as a transformational leader. I mean, King's another example of someone who, you know, he didn't come out of the gate saying, I want to be transformational. He didn't actually want to own the leadership initially of the Southern, leadership, of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. That was something that was kind of foisted on him for political reasons. But you think about the letter from the Birmingham jail, right? I mean, or you think about all those decisions, all those times, the forbearance it took for Mandela or King or Lincoln, right, to, in some sense, or, or Roosevelt to not act or to move cautiously or to not claim, right, action from rage. So forbearance is very, very important. The second thing I would say is it takes a willingness on the part of the individual to be made and learn in the moment. So Roosevelt had that. I, I don't know enough about Mandela to know he had it. I know King had it. I mean, Lincoln was like his, you know, his own best teacher all his life, and the presidency was his best, and the bloodshed of the Civil War was his best classroom. But you've got to start off with someone who's willing right, to step outside themselves and look at themselves and say, what do I learn here, and what do I need to keep learning? Because the presidency isn't like you get downloaded some software, and you walk in, and you're OK. Right? I mean, there is no crucible like that. So I think it takes a combination of things around emotional intelligence, but also this willingness to, to, to learn to be transformational, including all the transactions you have to do to get the laundry out, make the donuts. In, in politics, we talk about, we talk about letting, letting issues ripen. There's a time when they're not ripe, and you, you want to leave them on the tree for a little longer before you bite in. And with Roosevelt's case, for example, I think it was 37, 1937, he gave a very strong speech, a quarantine speech, I think it was 37, and he got his head handed to him. The issue wasn't ripe yet. And he had to sort of pull back, because he knew the followers went out there, and then wait for it to ripen. And, and you help it ripen along, but you do it in a quiet way, and then you can go. Or, or yeah. Nancy's the expert on yeah. Lincoln, but he really bided his time and bit his tongue on emancipation right. until Antietam. He needed a Union victory before he could make sure he wouldn't lose the border states and lose the Union. That takes a lot of cut guts and contextual intelligence. Right. Please, sir. 
Hi, uh, thank you. My name is John Soto. I'm a member of the forum committee. I'm a junior at the college. Um, I want to ask the panel a question that was submitted to us through Twitter. Um, how has the increased partisanship and the inaction of the Congress affected um, presidential leadership and under what conditions, if any, shall we expect any structural changes maybe? Well, how did they, how does the partisanship, the intense partisanship in today's Congress inhibit presidential leadership? <laughs> uh, ask uh, President Obama <laughs> after the uh, Senate vote today on guns, yeah. uh, when they rejected a, uh, even, even, even a, a background check, I mean, which was the most modest of, of all of the uh, uh, propositions on the table. Uh, it's very difficult, and, and, the, and the problem is it has uh, become more difficult. I think Barack Obama truly wanted to be a transformational president. I don't think that was idle chatter on the campaign. He understood what that term meant, I think, in its original sort of James Burns or Jim Burns uh, 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 interpretation. Uh, but it's very, very hard to be transformational in, in the domestic sense. Uh, in this environment, it's part of you know the dysfunctionality. It's uh, somebody's going to. I think we're eventually going to get out of this, but it's going to take some time. And we're in a very sort of sick period in our politics. And I, I have faith, as Joe does, that uh, ultimately you'll come back. The question is, do you lose so much in the, way, in the, pro the time frame that you, you 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 suffer so much damage that it's, it becomes irreparable? And that I don't think we know the answer to yet. Yes, sir. Hi, I'm Robert Chu, a retired professor of computer science and consultant. Uh, I, my question is regarding the um, uh, climate change and the, uh, that uh, President Obama addressed in his uh, State of the Union. Uh, it seems to me that the uh, Keystone Pipeline is a kind of watershed event and that uh, he can exercise his leadership by not approving that, it has no it has no material advantage for the U.S. It's just a pipeline through, and it with the recent spill in Arkansas, it just makes no sense to me at all. And I don't know what the probability of approval or non-approval is that. Does someone want to respond to that, Graham? Well, I think that there's uh, as uh, as he knows there's. Arguments on both sides, uh, powerful arguments, none of them decisive, uh, and the president has been struggling with it because of the politics. On the one hand, uh, the, uh, the energy revolution that's going on in North America is something to celebrate. It'll be a fantastic advantage for the U.S. overall, and it's important in terms of U.S.-Canadian relationship. On the other hand, the climate, the objectives that the president clearly holds to are ones that uh, he's been not able to make a lot of progress with respect to, and this is quite symbolic in that regard. So I think uh, it's likely, at least as I watch the conversation about this, that he'll make this choice not like, not, not as if it's crucial in itself, but in the context of whatever agenda he comes to, which I think is still unsettled, for simultaneously trying to do something about the climate problem, which he understands is a huge, huge long-term problem for the U.S., and that he's unable to do anything about 
given the Congress that he has. He would like to have a carbon tax or a, a, a version of you know, the, the uh, Markey bill that was passed in 2009, but he hasn't been able to make much progress on it. So he's going to be looking for things to do there. And clearly, if you look at the new budget, he's going to be trying to do things that he can do by executive order. But simultaneously, he wants to unleash the energy revolutions in the U.S., including shale, in order to improve the U.S. competitive position. So I think that's what he's struggling with. And I'm, I mean, I, if I listen to the, to the Washington conversation, they're very reasonable people within the administration arguing very hard on both sides of this issue. I think all of us probably have views on this, but maybe we ought to keep moving on. Yes, sir. I'm Richard Solomon, a member of the community at large, uh, Wilson School 77. I'd like a viewpoint of whether we're really talking about leadership. Any presidential candidate has spoken of platforms, domestic and foreign policy, but as I think across the entire 20th and the beginning of the 21st century, every president has had to react to a mess or a crisis. And I'm not gonna list each one, we all know what they are. And so it isn't a matter of whether they have leadership capability or leadership vision but it's how they react to the crisis that's dumped on their lap. Uh, and so I'm asking what you think of that. <laughs> I, I, I mean, that's one of the things I try to get out in the book, that the structure of a situation is going to provide events and changes. You're going to come to a rapids, you're going to come to a waterfall, and you're going to have to figure out how to respond. But that's what the particular genius of Bush 41 was. He didn't come in trying to change the world, or with, he, he himself said he didn't do vision. That was not his thing. <laughs> and uh, even when you look at his book with Brent Scowcroft, he said, you know, we didn't have a vision. But he was confronted with some extraordinary turbulent stretches of this river of history. And he navigated it brilliantly. And that took extremely good leadership. In 1989, you had changes bubbling up from the bottom inside Eastern Europe, inside East Germany, inside the Soviet Union, which were creating a fluidity which was rare. Most of the time, things are more or less locked in place. In those circumstances, Helmut Kohl in Germany and Mikhail Gorbachev, each for their own different reasons, tried to capitalize on the change. Gorbachev to save the Soviet Union by changing it, which of course he failed, Kohl to unify Germany by taking this fluid moment. And Bush had the ability to have these two men who otherwise would have come at loggerheads. And when I say loggerheads, you had, I guess, over 100,000 Soviet troops armed in Germany. And an incident which could have triggered a 400,000, 400, yeah. I mean, it was, it, was a, it, it, it was a very fraught situation. Bush had the capacity to back coal on German unification despite the advice of Margaret Thatcher, indeed despite the advice of Brent Scowcroft, his closest advisor, and do it in such a way that Gorbachev eventually accepted it. That was the genius of Bush 41's leadership. It wasn't that he had a vision. In fact, it was that he had contextual intelligence and skill to make this thing, this fluid moment of history, 
turn out well. That, to me, is leadership. Yeah, I'm, I'm rather drawn to uh, a distinction uh, by Sidney Hook, who was an historian, wrote a book back in the early 40s called The Hero in History. And he distinguished between the eventful man versus the event-making man. He said both of them appear at sort of turning points in history, at forks in the road. And, he's, and he said the eventful man is one who happens to be present at the, at, the, at the turning point, and by acting as he does, helps events to take the course they might, in any case, have been expected to take, whereas the event-making man is one who causes events to take a different course from that that they might likely have taken had he not been present. And I, I, I found that to be a helpful way of thinking about what but you're writing sometimes about. Sometimes the event-making man makes events that he doesn't intend. Gorbachev yes. was a truly transformational leader but he transformed the situation for the worse from his point of view. Without Gorbachev, I think the Soviet Union could have lasted another 10 or 20 years. Uh, but Gorbachev is Gorbachev's like a, a man who has a sweater, and the sweater is starting to, one of the threads is starting to come up. So he starts pulling on this, <laughs> this thread. Before you know it, he has no sweater. <laughs> That, that's transformational. Joe, your metaphors that Russian river <laughs> ends on a log, pulling on a sweater. That's right. We're going to get back to the sex scene there's, any moment. Yes, sir. We're going to a couple more. The two were the, between the two, which were the, were, was the transformational? If you take Bush 41 and Gorby, it's for sure Gorby. I yeah. mean, by, by just as Joe said, by, by a huge amount. And when we had Gorbachev here, I mean, when I introduced him, I said, this is a man who had a bigger impact on history than any other living person on earth today, in which he transformed history in a manner that he didn't intend, didn't understand, and didn't even appreciate for a long time. So event-making leaders may make not the events they intend. <laughs> yeah, they're very good. And loser sweaters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well done, well done. Gorbachev was asked about counterfactuals. He said, you have to be very careful about counterfactuals because it's difficult to be certain because you change one fact, you don't know whatever else changes. But he said, I, he thought one of them, one counterfactual he was confident about. So you can watch this on the forum, uh, forum tapes. He said, if Lee Harvey Oswald had shot Khrushchev <laughs> rather than Kennedy <laughs> in I 1963, I he's confident that Aristotle Onassis would not have married Mrs. Kusha. <laughs> okay, we have time for a couple more. Hi, uh, my name is Danny Hatem. I'm a second year MPP. Um, professors Nye or Kane, someone about an hour ago, tried to define contextual intelligence as a leader being able to realize where people is willing to be led. And my question is that in our technologically advanced, ever more individualized, fractured, impatient, conspicuous consumption America, <laughs> are we less willing to be led? And is that why we ask so much of our presidential candidates and then turn on them so quickly? No, I think that's an important part of contextual intelligence today, which is that uh, the relationship between leaders and followers is much less hierarchical than in the past. It's much more like being in the center of a circle rather than being king of the mountain. And that means that if you lead as though you're king of the mountain, but in fact people are looking, each going their own way, communicating with each other through various social media and so forth, 
and you're acting as though you're going to give an order or make a speech and they'll fall in line, you've missed the change in context. So yes, you do have to understand this change in context to be an effective leader today. Uh, I, I've used this term that uh, being in the center of the circle requires you to attract and persuade others, what I call soft power. And being king of the mountain, you can give commands and that's hard power. Uh, what's interesting is that a lot of people think that uh, uh, women actually are better at soft power that they have more experience and understanding of how to work networks in this way. And the men, because of the way they're brought up in these societies today, are more tend toward command and control. If that case is true, then essentially you might see some transformations of what we'll see as presidential leadership. Now this is early speculation and 2016 isn't here yet, but it is interesting to see whether in this century you're going to see that sort of change of style of leadership toward more soft power and whether that'll have gender implications. And just remember, there are always exceptions to every leadership rule. We just buried Margaret Thatcher this week. Yeah. Please. Uh, my name is and we're going to come back to you and you're going to have the last question. All right. Hello, uh, my name is Ben Bolger and I'm an alum of, of Harvard. Um, I'm intrigued by the notion of uh, looking at counterfactual uh, in, in your forthcoming book. I'm also thinking about the relationship to chaos theory and how small events can have very significant uh, impacts in history. For example, a, a security guard at the Howard Johnson's across the street from the Watergate uh, called to report a burglary and that had very catastrophic effects. Um, but there's a certain, another perspective to say there was an inevitability that Nixon might have uh, been caught at some other instance. So what I'm wondering is just from the panel, what is your view of history? Is there essentially an inevitability to certain leaders that regardless of these small perturbations and in, in fluctuations, it will eventually happen? Or do we really need to think about these little small fluctuations as being very pivotal in history, that these small incidences actually do shape the course of history? And I'm just wondering how that then relates to your views on counterfactual analysis. Uh, Nancy, you want to go first? I, I, I have a thought on it, but as a historian. <laughs> so one of the good things about being a historian is we get paid for reading other people's mail. And we don't have a lot of guests in our class because up until the last part of the semester, my guests are all dead. But the third really good thing about being a historian is that we actually get better as we get older. We're kind of like violin players, a few equestrians that show jump. And, and, and I've been doing this for a long, long time, and I, I don't see either a kind of Hegelian or ontological inevitability in all the history I've been studying, all and all, and both European and American history. Don't know as much about the history of Asia, but I know a lot about European and American history doing this for over 30 years. So that's, I don't see it. But I also, but, but, but I also don't see a kind of randomness. I mean, small things do matter, right? I mean, what if Lincoln's guard hadn't been drunk, right, outside, of for, outside the door of the presidential box? Um, in Ford's theater. There's lots of them. There's lots of them. Um, in fact, uh, The Atlantic last month did a, asked like 10 historians and a few like movie producers, right, what were the one small thing that changed the world? So, so I, I think it's a combination though, as, as Joe says in his book, as I said at the beginning, of, of these larger forces that no one person and no one thing can alter like that. And then it's these, fa the, what's fascinating about it is the individual agency, right, acting 
in concert with others, but often through a leader, broad, you know, however we want to define that sometimes frustratingly vague term, can have momentous impact. Momentous, and it can have, you know, it can have unintended impact or terrible impact. I just finished a biography of Bonhoeffer, and you watch through the 30s, through this German pastor, the noose of Nazi socialism from the German perspective, not, the, not a Jew, Jewish German, a Protestant, well-connected Berliner's perspective get tighter and tighter and tighter. And so it can have, you know, one person context. So it can, but, but it, it really is, it's not that simple, which is good because I still have a job. Um, but it also makes it much more interesting. And it means for each of us, at a moment, trying to exercise citizenship, right? We have citizenship, we have responsibilities, we can have impact. Americans, a lot of us have forgotten that, but we can have impact. Yeah, I, I think one of the hard things is to understand when accidents change the course of history and when they don't. Uh, some accidents may indeed change the course of history, but if they hadn't happened, there might have been another accident which would have been just as effective. Mac George Bundy once said about a particular incident in the Vietnam War, Plecus are like streetcars, they come along every 10 minutes. So, you know, saying that this was a determining event, uh, you have to say there wouldn't have been another similar event. Perhaps the greatest example of this is Sarajevo in 1914. Suppose that the Archduke's Ferdinand's driver had turned the corner before in a different direction, and Gavrilo Princip had not fired his shot, there would have been no war at that time. But people who say that that was therefore an accident history um, say yes, but there would have been some other damn thing. If it's not one damn thing, it's another. So imagine that the driver had turned the other direction, Princip had not assassinated the Archduke. Since the Germans wanted a war with Russia before the Russian railway system was completed, which would have been the end of their Schlieffen plan to beat the French in the West and then turn east to the Russians. They would have found some other event. But so in that sense, was Sarajevo a crucial accident or not? You could say it doesn't matter, there would have been another pretext. But imagine that it had not been soon. And the Russian railway system, which the French were financing, had become sufficiently developed that the general staff would have said to the Kaiser, boss, we can no longer carry out the Schlieffen plan. The risk of trying to get a victory in the West before we turn East is now out of the question. We have to really rethink our strategy. The strategy at that time was what was called the strategy of the offensive. You went and made a very quick strike using railway systems, not. And if you had avoided another Sarajevo for another year, maybe then you would have had a change in strategy toward a more defensive strategy and no World War I, or not the one that we saw. Alternatively, if you'd had another Sarajevo a month later, then Sarajevo wouldn't have mattered because it was just another accident. So it, one of, if you play counterfactual history, you have to ask, how significant was the accident? And what were the alternative accidents which could have produced the same effect? Last question. 
I'm asking this question on behalf of the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum Committee. So this forum is titled The Rise of American Power, and you guys seem to have conflicting views of whether or not American power is on the rise. But I'm just curious, when will there be a peak of American power, and is there anything a president can do to prevent that peak, or is it inevitable? Well, different people on this panel have different views. Um, I think you can never know. There's, there's a wonderful view among some that, uh, you know, power has an organic cycle, just like human life has an organic cycle. And therefore, you know when you've peaked and when there's decline. So you can look at me and you can say with absolute certitude that I'm in decline. <laughs> but if you look That's at... But if you look at a country, you don't know what those peaks and valleys are. Remember, it took Rome 300 years to collapse after it reached its peak. Uh, so what's the natural cycle there? It's not four score years and 10. And if you look at uh, the wonderful statement by the British statesman Horace Walpole in the 18th century, after Britain had lost its North American colonies, he said, woe is Britain. We're now reduced to a miserable little island like Sardinia. And he said that on the eve of Britain's greatest century, which was created by the Industrial Revolution. So anybody who tells you they know the life cycle of the United States and can tell you what the answer to your question is, is lying. Well, we should, Graham or uh, Nancy, do you have a? That's a good final. It is. Yeah. It's a good. It's gonna, well, I hope well, that you're. No, I don't agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't agree that Joe is declining. Yes, yes, we we, we all register there. I, I I hope that there are two takeaways uh, here tonight. Uh, one is to see uh, in a conversation among the faculty here, uh, not just how learned it is, without reference to Google. Nobody had to look anything up on Google in order to talk tonight. They talked on what they knew and what they learned over a long time. But I, but I think you can also see, we have a lot of fun together. Uh, and it's, a, uh, it's, it's part of the uh, attraction uh, beyond this faculty. I hope the second takeaway is that May 1, Joe's book will be out. <laughs> Go get it. Thank you all very much. <clears throat>